Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is co-host Cal Raustiala, and I'm really pleased to have with us today on the podcast, David Kay. David is currently a professor at UCI, UC Irvine Law School here in California, uh, but he was previously the special rapporteur for freedom of expression. There's a longer title, but I'll, I'll truncate it. And he's also currently the board chair of the Global Network Initiative. And the recent author, uh, or rather the author of the recent book, Speech Police. And so as you can guess from all of those things, David has spent uh, quite a bit of time working on issues around speech, freedom of expression, and related issues, especially as they apply in digital contexts. So a very timely topic for us. And what I thought we would do today is talk a bit about his work, but also about the implications for uh, free speech on the internet as regarding elections and uh, democracy more generally. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks, Cal. It's great to be with you here. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Um, I should confess that David and I are not strangers. I've known him a long time, and uh, <laughs> I'm really glad to have, uh, to have a chance to talk about his work. So, um, David, maybe what we could do just to set the stage is have you explain a little bit about what the Special Repertoire for Freedom of Expression traditionally does, mm -hmm. uh, and specifically what you did. So what are some of the highlights from your, I think you just finished about six years in that post. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, you know, like all special rapporteurs for the UN, I was appointed by the Human Rights Council. And, you know, the, the kind of bread and butter work that all special rapporteurs do is communicating with governments, raising issues within their mandate. So for me, it was freedom of expression, but it could also be, as with others, summary executions, uh, torture, um, culture. I mean, there's, there are almost 50 special rapporteur mandates or working groups these days. So, you know, we'd communicate with governments, we would conduct country visits. And I think, you know, actually a significant part of the ASIL audience is familiar with the thematic reporting that we do. Um, I would report each year to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly on some broad issue uh, of relevance to, to freedom of expression. And I think that, I mean, one of the things that I saw early on, and it, you know, I wasn't original on this, uh, but the thing that seemed very clear was um, the way in which so much speech had moved online and, and how, you know, what we now think of as a kind of digital authoritarianism had started to kind of work its way into, um, you know, the, the way in which people speak, the way in which they are um, kind of constrained from speaking and sharing information. And so much of my work over, over six years dealt with, at some level, the intersection of expression and opinion on the one hand, and the you know emerging technologies, whether it was social media surveillance or or other areas of of tech. Great. So there's a tremendous amount to cover there. Mm -hmm. All quite interesting. But maybe what we could start with is just addressing what you see as kind of the most pressing issues over the last few years and, and today with yeah. regard to to free expression. 
Um, and then maybe we could pivot to how international law plays into that. But, but what are some of the key issues that you, you found and, and identified during your time as Special Rapporteur? Yeah, and you know, those two things really intersect the, the, because I think much of what I found in my work actually is relevant to the question of what law applies to these issues. So to give an example, I mean, I became very interested and did a lot of work in two particular areas. One is content moderation by social media platforms. And that means, you know, what the platforms are doing, but also the pressure that they're under from governments. And, and obviously, you know, that, that's, that's like a uh, kitchen table kind of issue for people around, around the world now. You know, what, what is what is the role that social media plays in our lives, in our communications, our debates, and, and so forth. And the other issue was, uh, was surveillance, and not just the mass surveillance, the kind of thing that Edward Snowden revealed in, in 2013, but also the, the kind of targeted surveillance that we see um, that has been generated by you know, both the, the demand side, you know, governments increasingly want cheap ways to track journalists, opposition figures, and others, but also the remarkable growth of the private surveillance industry. And so those two things I found, you know, really troubling, but also I think, you know, both areas where I think people are struggling to figure out what the law is, if any law, um, that governs these issues. So those have become big, big issues for me. Well, let's get into that a little bit on what kind of law governs it. So obviously, there are a number of different national laws one might either identify or, or propose or imagine. Mm -hmm. But at the international level, uh, what would you point to as the most, uh, you know, sort of the most important bodies of law? And then relatedly, what do you think we need? So in other words, is there uh, either a live discussion or ought there be a live discussion about some additional, let's say, treaty framework or other framework around these issues? Yeah. I, you know, so um, since my work was and my mandate came from the Human Rights Council, uh, you know, I, I looked at these issues through the human rights lens. And so the, the basic framework is found in Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which protects everyone's right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers and through any media. That's like almost a quote, but it's more or less a paraphrase. And it, you know, that law um, is it's pretty expansive, um, and it, you know, it of course it gives some ability for states to restrict expression. But, um, but it's, a, it's a robust area of law, I think. And so I did most of my work focused on, on the human rights law implications of these new technologies. And I think you're right to focus the question on, you know, what, what frameworks should be, we be looking for to provide us with answers to these questions? And do we need more law? I mean, I, I'm... On the one hand, I, I want to say, no, we don't need more law. The, you know, we need the development of it and the development of normative frameworks that, that can develop out of human rights law. And, and, I, and I also feel that, and, and you know this as somebody who's studied international regimes for, for so many years, you know, it's, it's really difficult, particularly now, 
to imagine the international community getting together and negotiating new frameworks on on things like surveillance or you know different kinds of tech behavior and so I'm, I'm a little bit I'm wary of ideas to um, to sort of expand the treaty framework but I also think that we're in a at a time when you know in both you know the content moderation side and the private surveillance side we're living in a kind of lawless environment so there needs to be some uh, some focus on how we get that human rights law framework um, you know uh, integrated maybe into either domestic frameworks or other um, other frameworks that can actually constrain behavior. When you started in this position, did you imagine that elections and kind of the impact of of digital content and opinion on the democratic process generally, or let's say the political process generally, would be such an important issue? Was that something that you saw right away, or was that something that developed? over time yeah it i mean it, it honestly it developed you know the way when i first started in the position in 2014 um you know surveillance was a was a big kind of overhanging issue digital security was a big issue particularly in light of the you know the increase in our knowledge about government surveillance mass surveillance and i and so i was i was focused on those things which you know looking back they look I wouldn't say narrow, but they but they were they were somewhat granular, and I think it took kind of the you know you know frankly a couple of things. One was the Trump campaign in 2015 and 2016, with uh, you know the kind of disinformation that was clear, clearly taking place throughout his campaign and his use of social media to make that happen, but also you know as time went on. Um, the the way in which bad actors in places like Myanmar, um, the Philippines, and elsewhere were were really weaponizing social media for you know really negative effects and and I I think that that changed the way that I saw the platforms I mean I think like like all of us we were so many of us at least uh, I think we're kind of um, you know, we, we grew up to a certain extent, or we came to see social media early on and other forms of tech as this tool to expand our horizons, to expand access to information. And there were some people who saw early on the, the, the dark side of this, but I think by and large, you know, the internet freedom agenda that was pursued by people like Hillary Clinton and, and others at the State Department was about you know all the positive things that you know flow from um, access to information online and and it took me some time to really see that the dark side of that uh, was something that was you know incredibly important to focus on. When we look at it from the vantage point of today, it's interesting to think about how you started in 2014, which was about a year maybe even less after the Snowden revelation started coming out. So yeah. I could imagine that surveillance was kind of a critical, seemingly overwhelming issue then. Mm -hmm. Have we sort of forgotten about that as a, as a society, as a culture? Um, has that been drowned out? I mean, I want to get back into elections and the impact on elections, but is that something that we're maybe not paying as much attention to today, whereas we did in the past and we ought to, we ought to revisit? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you mean the mass surveillance kinds of? Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. the sort of things that Snowden, yeah. you know, mass, but also specific, you know, Snowden had so many different things that came out of that. True. Both mass and targeted against certain individuals. But, you know, the fear at the time seemed to me to be, look at what the NSA in particular, but what, what other big government agencies can do, mm-hmm. how scary that was. Um, whereas the private sector sort of, had a role, but it seems smaller. Uh, and now the fear is Facebook is destroying our lives. <laughs> right. In, in I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there's always this risk that we have, um, and this isn't just an American thing. I mean, we, we all have a kind of short attention span, right? So like, if you think about the last 10 years, you know, the, the different issues that have taken up a lot of our our mental space and our worrying space have been, you know, things like surveillance. Um, They've been um, big data was a, you know, a kind of a a tag word for for a while. Um, Algorithmic, uh, you know, decision making and AI and the opacity of that decision making. And now social media and its power over our lives and the AI stuff intersects with that. So, you know, I, I, it's, I'm not sure that we've forgotten about those things. I think those things will come back. I think, you know, um, and, and they come back in part by what we see in, in the news. So just to give an example, one of the things that I focused on with Agnes Calamard, who's the special rapporteur in summary executions, was the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the intersection of that with, um, with surveillance. And, you know, we, I think that people, you know, were, were really alive to, to that intersection for a while, and then it, it kind of fades a bit. There's going to be a couple of films coming out over the next month or two about uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the role of surveillance uh, of dissidents as well. And I think, you know, we... I think it'll be a real test for, let's say we have a democratic administration in the United States next. It'll be a real test for them to figure out how do we, how do we address these problems that are not just domestic problems, but they're global ones and there isn't a clear legal framework to deal with them. And, you know, bringing back that sense of, you know, that you describe of kind of fear of, uh, kind of out of control surveillance, I think that's going to be part of the work of policymakers to remind us of, you know, how out of control surveillance internationally is a problem for, for all of us. Yes, yes. So, you know, here we obviously have an election coming up uh, rapidly, uh, yeah. but we're not the only country that has had issues around uh, let's say, expression and social media meeting yeah. democracy in, a, in an unhelpful way. Uh, and that's probably putting it mildly. So, um, you know, this is a global issue, not, a, not an American issue, but it, it does seem particularly acute here in the United yeah. States. Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, what you think, so you talked about how can we address this legally? How can we comport with, uh, with existing human rights instruments? What can we do, if anything, in the near term around um, disinformation and the way that social media is often used to to whip up hatred and uh, and actually maybe even to foment um, you know genocides? 
Uh, yeah. Can we do anything in the short term? And then in the longer term, what would you counsel we do? Are there, are there legal solutions that you think are handy or is it something that's going to take an enormous amount of work to formulate? Yeah. I mean, the, the short term fixes are, um, I mean, none of this is easy. I, right. It's um, I don't want to give the impression that I think that all of this can be fixed. I mean, there was a um, or can be fixed easily or quickly that I always have in mind after Trump was elected, the, the New York Times, it was like November of 2016. The New York Times had an editorial where they, they basically said something like, you know, surely Facebook's programmers can find a way to spot bogus stories and, and you know, zap them <laughs> from, from the platform. And, you know, the technology isn't that easy. Um, you know, our, the human capital, the human labor part of this, it's not that easy to do that kind of work. It's, there's also a flood of this information. So we're going to have to rely on AI, on automation to deal with some of this. We're also dealing with a situation where you've got people who are working from home now and doing this kind of content moderation over election disinformation. I mean, my view is over the very short term, and we're talking about weeks because it's not just that we have an election looming. I mean, we are in the election. You know, people are already voting in the United States for, for president. Early voting has started. And I think that you know, the, the major platforms in the United States, and the New York Times actually did an editorial on this uh, over the weekend, the major, um, the, or on Monday, the, the major platforms should all get together right now and say, you know, this is what we're going to do about election disinformation. It doesn't have to be about all misinformation, but particularly about voter disinformation. And they should be clear about what their rules are. They should have a joint commitment to take action against it. I mean, now is the time to do it. And, um, and they should, it would be, I think, a signaling exercise as much as, you know, a practical exercise in identifying, you know, across platforms, what kind of disinformation is, is really seeking to suppress the vote. I mean, I think, so I think there's like a near-term thing that has to be done. I mean, the longer-term question is, you know, what kind of regulation Particularly, I mean, if we're thinking about the United States, what kind of regulation is possible that would be consistent with the First Amendment? But it's also a global issue. What kind of regulation can we imagine that would also be consistent with the right to freedom of expression around the world? And I think, I mean, that's a, that's a trickier one, but I think there's, there's possibilities out there for addressing the long term. What are some of the platforms doing now uh, with regard to, let's say, disinformation or voter suppression or things? I, I have the impression that there were some actions maybe Twitter was taking. I'm, yep. I'm maybe the last person left on earth who's not a Facebook user. Uh, <laughs> and I had, I had the impression that, that Twitter at least had taken some steps, but, but what's actually happened so far? Yeah, I mean, so they've, um, they've tried to tighten their rules, at least they're saying, you know, we're going to address voter disinformation, we're going to address information about, you know, about ballots. And, and you know, when it comes to what, what Trump and the people around Trump are doing, it's, it's pretty vast. You know, it's, it, the concern isn't just about, you know, bad actors providing people with bad information about where they can vote. It's also about the whole 
you know, kind of environment of saying mail-in ballots are bad, they're about, you know, fraud and so forth, which is, you know, at some level designed to lay the framework, lay the groundwork for what, what Trump might do after the election, but also I think is designed to demoralize voters and to suppress the vote. And so the platforms, I think, are saying we're going to address that. Several of them have adopted new tools, and Twitter and Facebook have definitely done this, where they label uh, what they see as disinformation. So they have a rule, they see a violation, and they might have, uh, you know, a label on it. I think, like, the take on those labels um, so far, I think, among people watching this is that they're pretty weak. They don't do enough. Um, They're not, you know, they're not necessarily taking down bad information. They're just maybe creating some friction, so it's harder to get at. I think the other problem, and this, there was, um, I think it was an FT story the other day highlighted this, where, you know, Nick Clegg, who's, I think, the head of global policy at Facebook, you know, basically said that, you know, we're aiming to address this, but, you know, some of the hard questions will be decided by, by him, by Sheryl Sandberg, by Mark Zuckerberg. And that's, like, that's a real problem because it's clear that political pressure uh, and, and the kind of pressure that we've seen stories about in, in the context of, you know, um, conservatives in particular trying to, to kind of game the system and to, to, to get Zuckerberg in particular not to take action against Trump, you know, that, that I think casts a pretty bad light on the idea of having neutral rules that are applied neutrally and objectively. And I, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty concerned that, that this idea that, that they're going to be able to address disinformation is something that, that they're actually going to be able to do without the kind of political pre- uh, pressure that can influence them. What's wrong with the labeling approach? So I, I guess, you know, I understand it might be inadequate as a practical matter in the same way that putting calorie counts or sugar content on the label of a food product isn't going to stop people from, from eating it. Yeah. But is that not consistent with a host of other either rights or just assumptions about life in an open society that ultimately all we can realistically do is, is label and let people make their own decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. It, it highlights the tensions that are involved here. I mean, disinformation isn't, first of all, there's no commonly held uh, definition of disinformation. Um, and, and not only that, you know, human rights law doesn't say, you know, um, everyone has the right to seek and receive information that's true. It's information and ideas that, of all kinds. And so I, I completely agree with your, your, your point that you know, w- there's, a, there's this tension in a free society over how to address these things. But, but I do think that the platforms have an obligation to consider you know, the way in which they're, they're weaponized where they're abused, and, and also the kind of reach that they have that isn't the normal kind of reach that, you know, one speaker has in, um, you know, in different, uh, in other kinds of contexts. And so, you know, here I would say the platforms need to be thinking about, like, if we are um, 
identifying disinformation that is specifically designed uh, to attack voting rights, let's say, then, you know, we have a host of, of possibilities to, to address that. And yes, people should be able to make up their own mind, their own minds. That's absolutely essential, of course. But can you create more friction so that it's clearer that the kind of information that they have identified as disinformation is in fact disinformation that is designed to undermine the democratic process. And, you know, the label doesn't always do it. There, there are other ways that they can do this. They can limit the reach. It can make it so that you don't actually see the post uh, right off and you, you see some, you know, label that essentially says that, you know, this is a tweet of the president of the United States. We're not taking it down because he's the president of the United States. And so there's some newsworthiness in it. But you should know that this is false information. And then you click on it and then you see it. That kind of friction, I think, has a, has a fairly strong effect on people. There's some research that what's known as pre-bunking is better than allowing the lie to be out there and then trying to address it. And I think that, you know, the platforms can do that. It, it doesn't do away with the tension that you're identifying, but I think there's a kind of responsibility that they have in the face of these, these attacks. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh- I mean, it seems plausible that that kind of pre-bunking, that's a word I'd never heard before, but it makes sense that that might be more effective. On the other hand, it does seem to give even more power to, let's say, Facebook for a moment. It would seem like the ability to do that uh, just gives them ever more, ever more power. Is that, you know, is that kind of inevitable here? That's, I mean, that's the other tension. Like pretty much every... Every idea that's out there that is costly, right? And also that is that puts the platforms in the center of decision making does exactly that. You know, it reinforces their power. And so so that's so I think this is and this goes back to your initial question about sort of the the short and the long term. I mean, so I think on over the short term, there are clearly steps that, that need to be taken to deal with with real threats. But over the long term, we do need to be thinking about what are the tools out there that, that not only address real harms and that have to be defined harms, not just generic harms, but what are the threats that are out there? What are the tools that we can adopt to, to address them? And how can we do it in a way that maintains the possibility for, for innovation, for entry into the market of new players, um, you know, and, and also gives a voice to democratic governments. Um, I, all of these issues are real long-term issues. They need to be on the agenda for too long, particularly in the United States. We've, um, you know, we've talked about them in a highly politicized way. You know, the, the European Union is now considering a, um, a digital services act that's going to over time be like the GDPR, the privacy regulations uh, for the internet economy. And this will be more about, you know, censorship, speech, um, the intersection with, with privacy and, and all of these different issues. And they're handling it in a fairly straightforward professional way. I mean, it's going to get messy, but these are issues that we definitely have to address over, over the long term with 
with democratic regulation. So would you say that the EU is handling it uh, the best at this point? I mean, are there other governments or, or regional entities that you want to single out for some praise in terms of how they've, they've tackled these problems? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of um, best practice out there, but, you know, so far, and I wouldn't say that the EU has been across the board strong on this. I mean, they've done, the, they're sort of their early steps, like four, five, six, over the last four or five years, uh, especially, have been, like, have been pretty problematic. So oftentimes, they're kind of um, backroom deals between the European Commission and the biggest platforms that are, are forms of pressure on the platforms, but they're not, they're not transparent. They don't involve civil society in the making of those um, the like new rules and so forth. And, and you get things like this, there's a, a voluntary code of conduct to deal with hate speech. Uh, that's one example. And, you know, very few people were involved in, in developing that code of conduct. But I think now, I think the process has opened up in a way and the commission has, has created a mechanism for public input. And I think the debate will be pretty robust. Um, and it seems like it's heading, I, I can't say it's heading in the right direction. It's too early to say that. But at least in, in terms of democratic accountability and transparency, it seems to be heading in a pretty positive direction. You know, when you look at states, like members of the EU, there are not really that many good examples of doing this. And so I think one hope that a lot of people have is that the EU and the commission in particular will, will create a model of, of democratic lawmaking and regulation of tech that, that can be you know, a model for the states, but also a model for others, you know, particularly as authoritarian governments are going exactly in the opposite direction. What kind of role has the UN played in this or should it play? And, and I would include, you know, subsidiary agencies and, and agencies like the ITU even. Uh, have they been involved? Has it been helpful? Is there something, is it realistic to expect anything helpful out of an organization like the ITU? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. The ITU has been a place where, you know, basically this, there's been this debate over the extent to which these issues should be multilateralized. And, you know, multilater multilateralism, like for us, I think is a, like, that's a good word. Um, but, but the Chinese, the Russians, and some others have been proposing multilateral efforts to control big tech, basically, that are, are really designed to give governments more power over tech. And frankly, more authoritarian power over tech. And so they've, they've actually been trying to use the ITU as the, as the location for those kinds of efforts. And there's been a lot of resistance. I mean, European governments have resisted that. The United States uh, for a long time has resisted that in favor of what's thought of as, as a kind of multi-stakeholder approach. So it's governments, it's companies, it's academics, it's civil society involved in thinking about these issues. The UN could have a role in, in doing some of this. It, I still think that the Human Rights Council can play a normative role in framing these issues as, as human rights issues. Um, but, but, you know, 
I think a lot of this is going to happen over the, the medium term at, at the regional levels, particularly at the, at the EU level in Brussels, and to some extent at, at national levels as different governments, including the United States, think about how to, how to regulate this space. You know, I completely agree about the multilateralism versus multi-stakeholder uh, kind of debate that's taken place with so many things on, on the internet. And, you know, in many ways, multilateralism is really code for, for greater state control. And what's so hard about this set of problems is, you know, on the one hand, a few minutes ago, we talked about, do we really want to empower Facebook to be doing even more uh, to control how speech is understood and seen and filtered? Uh, but I'm not sure that I want the ITU to be doing it either. And so it's right. not clear what the, you know, rough, what the right balance or what, what is even possible as a, as a balance, um, okay. which is, I suppose, what makes this such an interesting area. Yeah, so, and I think, but, and yeah, I do ahead. think that it, no, I think that's a really important point, but it, and it's really tricky. I mean, all of this involves different sorts of tensions. And I think that, look, if, if, if Joe Biden wins, <laughs> You know, hopefully, I mean, everybody's got a Christmas tree of things that they, they would want a Democratic administration to do. But I think, you know, as we think about what this, the tech world and regulation of tech internationally should look like, I think one hope that I would have would be that a Democratic administration would engage with traditional, you know, liberal Democratic states in this space and really start to think through what would be the, like what's the, the counter to the vision, which is really a vision that's presented by the Chinese and the Russians. And we, I think over the last, certainly over the last four years, we haven't seen enough of that. And I think that'll be a real challenge for, you know, for the democratic world and for the, you know, the rule of law respecting world to think about, well, what does this area look like? and and given that so many people think there needs to be regulation of that space, what does democratic regulation look like? It's a, a huge, huge challenge. Agreed. So just as we get toward the end of our time, we talked a lot about kind of content on particular platforms and what we might do about something that's, you know, truly disinformation. Um, but what about the control of entire platforms? So I'm thinking about, you know, we've talked mostly about Facebook, a little bit about Twitter, but we have the current debate over TikTok, mm -hmm. um, WeChat, and of course, in China, many platforms based out of the United States uh, are blocked. And so uh, how does that fit into this whole debate that we're having? Yeah, it's, it's true. We, you know, so often, and it's weird that it, it took, you know, it took Trump uh, to, to raise this, but for, for so long, this, the debate internationally has been about you know, basically Facebook, to some extent, Twitter, to a big extent, YouTube. And, you know, I think the debate and I, you know, sh share some of the responsibility for this has, has not focused enough attention on these other platforms. And, you know, and it's true, you know, WeChat and TikTok um, have, you know, some pretty significant problems about them. I mean, WeChat in particular, is very much a platform, particularly in China, but also when it comes to Chinese content around the world, that is subject to censorship demands of, of the government of the People's Republic of China. And so, you know, that, that fact, I think, is something that, 
that we need to be thinking about more as we think about global regulation of, of technology and of, of social media platforms and others. And I think at the domestic level, as we think about what you know, Trump is proposing, both around things like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, but also specific orders around TikTok and WeChat, are that, you know, I think it's very much wrapped up in the politicized way that that Trump and and some you know others in in the conservative space have viewed technology and particularly social media platforms. So when it comes to TikTok and WeChat, it's hard to to kind of separate out Trump's anti-China, which verges on if isn't explicitly racist in in some respects, or or at least xenophobic. Um, his attack on you know the Chinese virus, and and kind of giving blame to to China for all sorts of things. It's hard to separate that out from the genuine concerns that we should have about WeChat and TikTok. And and so far, and actually, I think this is where human rights law can be helpful to us. You know, people use WeChat and TikTok for legitimate freedom of expression purposes, right? To communicate with others, to share information, to debate, et cetera, for entertainment. And if there's going to be any restriction on those, it's up to government. Like government has the burden of demonstrating why it's necessary, why it's proportionate to do something like ban a platform from the United States. And I don't think that the Trump administration has shown that. And so, you know, I think these are, you know, issues of both global regulation and domestic regulation. And I think what what Trump is doing with respect to these platforms here is is deeply problematic because it gives all sorts of governments the the kind of clue or you know the the kind of open door to to also attack platforms and to attack American platforms that that don't have the same problems that TikTok and and WeChat might have. They may have different kinds of problems but it certainly opens up the door to, to regulation that isn't friendly to, to freedom of expression. Well, I think that's an excellent place to, uh, to wrap things. And David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I hope we can have you back again soon. Thanks, Cal. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>